scripture that we only read one very particular time of year. But today, we hope, I hope that we will see it in a new light. From Luke 1. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the Abril, Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then, Jesus, then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I, I haven't had sexual relationships with anyone? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman was labeled unable to conceive, and she's now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. And then the angel left her. And Mary said these words, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of me. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, this Sunday um, is, uh, like we said, a weird one, uh, but it also happens to be the third week of our Apostles' Creed sermon series. And if you haven't been with us up till now, it's okay, because I haven't been preaching either. And so I'm learning from other people. I'm hearing what they have to say on these things and trying to synthesize. And this is a highly didactic sermon series, meaning that there are things I want to distill to you, information I want you to learn. I want you to walk away knowing more about what it means to be a Christian than you did beforehand. And so I figured I'd use this time a little bit um, to kind of review the various pieces um, that we had. And so um, I'm going to walk over to this board and use this as we do it. Many of us, in fact, um, most of us, have grown up in the church so that um, when we hear the creed, we kind of already just speak it as other people speak it. It, It's so common to us. Um, There's other of us, though, have become a part of this church who you might have heard it maybe as a child at some point, but you've wandered away um, from the church and um, maybe you haven't been and maybe maybe you didn't go to a church that ever even said these things, ever professed the creed, even though any Christian denomination would say they believe in the words of it. And, um, and so everyone's story is different. Many of us here are fresh back to the faith. And so I kind of want to bring you up to speed. Um, so with that in mind, with, um, with who we are in mind, we um, as Christians 
believe in the creed, and, and we're going to talk about why this matters. First of all, up front, um, the week after Easter, Monica preached for us. If you were here, um, Monica talked about, uh, we're going to actually put the Trinity up here real quick. Um, so we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Monica kind of operated in this world up here. Um, on the first week. And Monica talked about three words in particular. She talked about the word believe. She talked about the word father. And she talked about um, the word creator. And we said that these words, um, these three words, to I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, um, these three words have become really problematic for us. Because as we try to unpack them, we realize it's not so simple. So the word believe, for instance, um, is the exact same word in the English language we use to talk about believing in Santa Claus. The exact same word we use to talk about believing in, in the tooth fairy. And yet we do not mean the same thing as Christians. Um, and so this word for us in the Greek is pistis, which implies that there has to be an action involved in it. It's a, a way of living for us. It has to be how we live it out. And so the, we should, instead of saying, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, we should say, I live my life as though these things are true. That's what we mean by believe. And so we had to kind of unpack that word. Then, then she talked about father a bit and how this has become problematic for us in a, um, in a patriarchal society. And, um, and so she, um, she talked about the masculine language that dominates the creed and how that harkens back to patriarchy and inequality. And what do we do with that then? Why, why, why do we call God father then? And so we say that Christians confess belief in God the father We are professing that we make our way to God through Jesus. And who does Jesus call God to be? Father. Doesn't put any, we're not putting any gender um, boundaries around God when we say this. We say we make our way to God through Jesus, and therefore we listen to Jesus, who happens to be the Son of God, and therefore we are also children of God. And then finally, Creator, she talked a little bit about how. To believe in a creator God is hard when we know science, too. And what does it mean to believe that God created um, all of this and also um, not take the Bible as a blueprint, um, but rather as um, not a blueprint to understanding um, how the world was created, on what timeline the world was created. Um, We use the the creation narrative many times um, to create us like seven days. This is how God created. And this is... Taking Bible as fact and not truth, right? And so if we want to take the Bible as truth, we say there is something true about who God is in this story, but it doesn't necessarily mean this is the timetable on which God created everything, and therefore we can believe and hold together both science and creation. And to say that God is a creator God is to say that God's still creating. Then Jason last week moved on to sun. So this was the second part. And Jason um, talked about how if If Jesus is fully human and fully divine, then all that we know about God is revealed in the person of Jesus. And he used, I mean, if you were here last week, you know the direction he took the sermon in order to flesh that out, that idea that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, then all we know God to be is who Jesus is. And therefore, um, 
therefore, who we are as uh, our broken existence, Jesus took that on fully as well. Every piece of us, every piece of who we are. Um, And so finally today, we are moving on to Holy Spirit. And so with that, I'm going to really start my sermon. Um, First, I'd like to say that preaching on Mother's Day is the hardest day of the year to preach. It is awful. Um, Why? That's the question. Um, So I'm completely comfortable being at the barn. All those people that have never been to my church before, hundreds of people, most of them won't come to my church after that one day. Completely comfortable with preaching on Easter with a whole bunch of skeptics and people whose arms are folded like this as I'm preaching. I can preach to those, but it is... um, Every year this, this, this day approaches and it's like a train coming on the horizon toward me. And every day I go, why is Mother's Day on Sunday? Why, how do we have to, to relate Mother's Day with what we do in the church? And, and so there's two ways. <laughs> there's two ways that the church has traditionally done this. Um, one way is that we just ignore it. And this is what I would say the majority of my colleagues would do, is we ignore Mother's Day. We're just not going to talk about the fact that it's Mother's Day at all because we are Christians and we're inviting people um, to be a part of the family of God and not into these nuclear families. And so, hey, we'll just completely ignore it. The other way I've seen it done um, is how I saw it done at my my grandmother's church growing up. Um, On Mother's Day growing up, I heard the worst sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, It went something like this. Um, Well, it was a string of, of stories about this man's childhood and how lovely and wonderful his mama was. And then at the very end, he told this story. He said, um, one day I got my BB gun stuck in the fence, and my mama came out, and she, she helped me get my BB gun out of the fence, and then we went inside, and she made me a PB&J sandwich. How wonderful are mothers. And then he went and sat down, and that was the end of his sermon, and um, you know that it's a bad sermon when, a, when like a ninth grader knows it. Like, I was a ninth grader in, in high school, and was like, what am I supposed to get from this? And it, what wasn't so bad was what, what was coming out of his mouth, but more the reaction of the room in general. Um, it was a traditional church, and he's standing up here, and so the choir's behind him. What he didn't see was Beverly. Um, and Beverly, the entire time he preached, just sobbed. Beverly just sobbed. And what he, he didn't see was Beverly, who everyone else in the church knew, had just lost her third baby. She just had her third miscarriage and just sobbing. And then two rows in front of us, um, of course, is another man who had a very complicated relationship with his mother. Uh, and um, and she, she had just died two weeks before, and he had to figure out how to write a eulogy about a mother that he didn't really know if he could talk about her as being a good mother. And so, and he just looked down and stared at his hymnal the whole time while this sermon is going on and on. And so... Um, Oh, how wonderful motherhood is. It is. And yet we have to acknowledge this day is really hard for people. And in, in this pastor's defense, though, it's a, it's a horrific day to preach on because 
the world around us are doing the cards and the flowers thing and the brunch reservation thing, um, and they're not, they're not acknowledging any of the pain, and the Hallmark industry doesn't acknowledge, doesn't have a card for I'm sorry for your loss, or doesn't have a Mother's Day card for I'm sorry that you lost your mom this year. It just doesn't have that stuff. And so, um, so what's happening outside is not really talking about it. And so we have two options. The church ignores it completely, um, or we do, we do what that pastor did, but I would like to do the third option today. If you're willing with me, I'd like to do the third option, um, which is to kind of take this head on and use Mary a little bit, um, since we are there and we're a part of that creed, use Mary as our direction through, um, through this day that is difficult for many and really wonderful for many as well. Um, so, We're on that third phrase, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Has anyone ever had a problem with this? I mean, like, does anyone have a problem with the fact that we have that in our creed? That is something we say we should believe. Why in the world do two billion Christians every week across the globe profess a silly thing like the fact that this woman was a virgin. It, it, it seems strange. I believe in the virgin birth. This is what we take ridicule for as the church from neo-atheistic clans that say that this is just a house of cards and that it can come quickly crumbling down if we pick at it at all and we realize how untrue this is and how impossible this is. Why in the world does the church expect us to believe in something like this? And so today I want us to answer three questions. One, who is Mother Mary? Why is she a virgin? Why? And why do I have to believe that? And what matters about that? To help us, we're going to dig into um, this with Mr. Willy Wonka. If you remember Wonka and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, there is this pivotal moment in the movie. For the first three quarters of the movie, It's just sort of this fantastical depiction of Wonka and the world he's created. The first part, you're just you're just thinking about him and 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 how weird he is and how quirky and wonderful he is and how fantastical this whole thing is and his dress and the way he talks and and the world he's devised is exactly the same way he is. This quirky, weird world. And after that long adventure of being wrapped up in the wonder of Wonka and the world he's created, there's this pivotal moment when the entire purpose of the movie is revealed and when Charlie and his granddad and Wonka are standing in the glass elevator and they haven't taken off yet and Wonka is talking about something else really crazy and fantastical and Charlie says, yes, yes, but how does it all work? And Wonka smirks and says, I thought you'd never ask. And then they shoot up into the sky and this panoramic view of Wonka's world and and they talk more about it. The part of the creed where we confess belief in the virgin birth is that pivotal moment 
where we start to talk about how God works in the world. I know everybody's looking there, so I'm going to say that again. The part of the creed, when we profess in the virgin birth, is the pivotal moment, like in Willy Wonka, where we start to talk about how God actually works in the world. The other two are standing back and looking at the weird world that God has created, looking at this weird God. Who is this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Who is this God who is Father, Creator? Those two are the standing in the elevator before it's taken off. The virgin birth is the moment where we see into, oh, this is how it all works. Profession of faith in, the, in Mother Mary and the virgin birth is the statement of how we believe salvation breaks into the world. We've stopped talking about who God is. We've stopped talking about, um, about how wonderful this God is. And now we're talking about how this God works. We read about her today, right? We read about Mary. The word of the Lord comes to her through an angel, through a messenger. And you can think wings if you want, but you can also just think a friend. A messenger just means, an angel just means a messenger. It could have been a friend. You're going to conceive and you're going to bear a son. Great news, right? Wrong. Awful news. We have this image of Mary just waiting there with hands clasped, probably because that's every icon ever made of Mary, In reality, she's this young and unwed and teenage girl, and it's a scandal. And God says that God is going to use this scandalous call and her response to that call to smuggle salvation into the world through her. This is how God works. How is she going to talk to Joseph about this? How is she going to talk to her parents about this? They're all going to lose face at the synagogue. You know that all this sort of seems to wash over Mary all at once because she hears the angel's news and says, how? How can this be? Like Charlie, she says, how how does this all work? And you can almost see a smirk come across the messenger's face. You can almost hear God say, I thought you'd never ask. And the angel keeps offering to her this promise of the spirit. And and she responds, here I am, your servant. Let it be with me according to your word. In other words, she said, your will be done, Lord, this is how it works. This is how salvation breaks into everything. This is why the virgin birth is so important. You notice that dance? God acting, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Mary responding, born of the Virgin Mary, let it be according to me, according to your will in me. This is how we profess belief in how God moves and works in the world. The church has been wrestling with what it means and how God actually saves us through Jesus forever. And they sat there, these people in the early church, and they said, presumably, God could have just fixed it all. God could have just spoken spoken something else into existence, this wonderful, fantastical God. No more death, no more war, 
No more cancer, no more depression. Just speak it, and God could have fixed it, right? But God didn't do that. They also thought, presumably, God could have just left us to our own devices, right? To have our just desserts. God could have left us to our own and just see how this whole experiment pans out. And God didn't do that either. Instead, God acted in this unique way. But God demands our response as well. So do you see that? This is how we start to see how God works. God acts and beckons our response. In the early church, there were some heresies. Heretics are not bad people. Every period of Reformation was full of somebody that somebody called a heretic at some point in time. Um, But at this point in time, heretics were considered the people who had dangerous teachings. In fact, the church believed and said that a heretic was more dangerous than a murderer because a murderer could take your life and a heretic can take your soul. They can teach you a lie, I guess, and you live your life by that lie long enough and your life you're not left with much life at all. One of the heresies during this time was something called Pelagianism, this guy named Pelagius, and he pretty much said this, God has given you everything you need to fix yourself if you would just get on with that work of fixing yourself. I wonder if you've met any Pelagians. They say things like, you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You should, you should just be able to fix yourself. The world can be fixed if people could just get on with doing what needs to be fixed. I wonder if you've ever met a Pelagian. I wonder if you've ever stared, if you've ever stared at a place so barren, so lifeless, so hopeless of life, like a virgin's womb perhaps, and you know that no amount of work or effort, or planning could bring life out of that. I wonder if you've ever been so addicted to something that you, no matter what you did, could not break that habit. I wonder if you've ever been so depressed that no amount of medication or counseling could fix it. I wonder if you've ever stared in a place that barren. The good news is that we believe that's where God works. That's why we profess in a virgin birth. The other heresy during this time um, was something called, I guess we could call it fatalism now. Fatalism is this belief that what will be, will be. Que sera, sera. That life is pretty much already planned out forever. Your days are numbered and ordered and God's got a plan and whatever you do doesn't affect that plan much. I wonder if you've ever known any fatalists. These are the people who, when you find out you've got cancer, they say something like, well, I'm sure God's got a plan for you. There's the people who 
think that institutions and, and people are so corrupt that there's nothing you can do to surmount that injustice. And so really, why bother? Why try? Why work for peace and justice? Except that the church believes that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, who said, let it be with me according to your will. Salvation broke out when Mary responded. And every single time in Mary's life where she said again, let it be according to me, according to your will, let it be with me. Something new happened. Guess what? She rewrote history. She rewrote her story every time she said that anew to God. Ultimately, this is an act of faith. We get stuck, though. It's an act of exchange of faith. But we get stuck as the church on only one side of that. We get stuck on the do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus side? We think this whole creedal thing, this whole thing, this whole creed that we say is about confessing our belief. But before that is the miracle of God professing belief in Mary. Greetings, favored one. You, you in the barrenness of your life, you're going to bring about something so new and extraordinary. And Mary responds to God's faith in her with faith in God, and salvation just breaks out. And 2,000 years later, we're still participating in this thing. One of the first things we notice about Mother Mary is that she's open and receptive to God. And she teaches her son how to pray. God's call on our life, Mother Mary will tell us, can come across as scandalous, untimely, inappropriate, unwise. And Mary and her children insist on remaining open and receptive to this call. Your will be done, Mary says. I remember when I was in seminary at Duke Divinity School, um, they would have this group of, of undergrads, and they would, they would invite people to, hey, instead of going to spring break, come with us on spring break and do some mission projects instead. And I didn't actually go with them, but they would have some of us reflect with them afterwards and try to get, okay, take the grad school people and reflect with the undergrad people and see what comes about, see what, what they learn from this. And, and then the normal experiences of, oh, I'm so happy to be home, my food, my bed. Oh, so it was a nice experience. And there was this one girl who was a junior at Duke, and she just was sort of shaken by having been away in El Salvador that week. Not crying, but rather kind of unnerved by it, flustered by it. And she said, something happened to me on that trip. Something happened. And she's not sure she can just go on anymore with life as normal. Turns out she is a pre-med major, and she felt like she needed to leave Duke to just withdraw. She didn't want to be a doctor. Her mom wanted her to be the doctor. She didn't know what she was going to do, but she knew she could not learn that on West Quad of Duke University. And she wanted to be as close to these kids in El Salvador. She wanted to be able to touch them as she figured out what God was, was having her to do with her life. And somehow those kids became her messenger 
and led her into the scandal of what she was called to do, she had to call her mom that night after thousands of dollars poured into an education scandal. You know she's one of Mary's kids. You can tell. Mother Mary and her children are always open to God's call, no matter how scandalous it might be. Mother Mary continues to offer her church both the model and the invitation to openness, to openness to a call, openness to risk. So why? Those three questions I said, who is Mother Mary? Why the virgin birth? I differentiated at the beginning the difference between fact and truth, right? Do you today have to believe that Mary was a virgin in the sheer fact of it in order to be a Christian, in order to profess this creed rightly? I don't know. I don't care, quite frankly. But is there truth in the fact that we say this together, that we say that Mary is actually a virgin, and what does it reveal to us about God? We're not in the business of facts here. We do theology, which is Who is God to us? And what we learn from this is that God is a God who acts out of nothing, who creates out of nothing, and who takes those barren places of our lives and transforms them into places where creation and new life can be brought forth. So if someone ever asks you, what's this whole Virgin Mary crap? You now know what to say. And I hope you have a story somewhat like, um, like that girl at Duke where God has called you out of barren, scandalous places and given you a story that is of life and scandal as well.